All right, well, good morning. It's time to get started. There are handouts on either side at the entrance doors and the chairs if you want to grab one. I think they'll be helpful to you as we go into the second part of the lesson today. So as we get started this morning, um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, starting in verse 129. Let's read a brief portion of God's word together as we contemplate the Bible, the scriptures. Psalm 119, 129. God's word says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down from my eyes, because men do not keep your law. Let's pray together this morning as we get started. Father, we come to you because we worship you, we praise you, and we're thankful to you because you have given us your word. In the scriptures, we find your words. Your words delight our soul. Your words prick our conscience, convince us of sin through the spirit. Your words have power, power to convert the soul. Father, we have confidence in that this morning, and we ask that as we open your word together and look at how to study the Bible one last time in this series, that you would help us, uh, that would stir up within us a desire to search the scriptures, a desire to study your word and be confident in its contents, because you are the God who is true. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, one last week here um, while Brian is out, and we didn't quite get done with unfamiliar passages last week, so we thought it would be good uh, just for one more week to kind of finish up here in class number six. So this is class number six continued. So by way of review, uh, last week we reviewed some attributes or characteristics of Scripture that we believe the Bible affirms, and I wanted to briefly go back over a couple of them. Uh, because I didn't really spend a lot of time on a couple, and I think it—I uh, think I didn't do a very good job explaining one in particular, um, the necessity of Scripture. Um, I think I really glossed over that attribute last week. It was kind of at the end. But the necessity of Scripture, when you think about that, we think about the Reformation idea of Scripture is necessary. What is it we're actually talking about there? What is, what is the necessity of Scripture, if you wanted to paraphrase it? Yeah. Thanks, Jesse. It's necessary, you said, to seek the will of God. Okay. What else is it necessary for? Salvation, absolutely. Salvation, and we can look at at those two aspects. What's the necessity of Scripture and God's special revelation toward the lost? So the necessity for salvation. And then what is its necessity for us? And it really glosses more into sufficiency when we think about the provision that God's made in his word to equip us for every good work. But let's think about the fact that Scripture, we'll say in a nutshell, is absolutely necessary for the knowledge of salvation. So if you think about Romans 10, and uh, you don't have to turn there, it should be a familiar passage, but it starts out, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not heard? How shall they believe in him of whom, or excuse me, how, how, shall they call on, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, 
who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, another very familiar passage, he says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through except through him, except through me. So only in scripture do we find the special revelation of Jesus Christ. We can contrast that to the general revelation of God in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's general revelation, even though the universe declares his handiwork, even though um, his glory is on display in all of creation, really all that can serve to do is condemn. Can't provide the knowledge of salvation. The special revelation of Jesus Christ is required for salvation. And we're reminded of that kind of general um, purpose of God's creation holds all men accountable in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So scripture is absolutely necessary to understand how man can be reconciled with God. We can't look at the stars, we can't look at God's creation, and understand who the person of Jesus Christ is, what God has sent him to do, how we are to be reconciled to God through his sacrificial death, through faith, in his blood. The second thing we, we talked about, a second attribute of scripture, is the perspicuity. What's the perspicuity of scripture? Yeah, the clarity of scripture. Perspicuity is not a very clear word. It's not a word that we often use today, but it simply affirms that scripture is clear. It's our responsibility, the responsibility of believers to read, understand, and meditate upon the scriptures. Um, We know scripture is clear. We know that God expects us to understand what's in them. We can go back to Deuteronomy 6. Does anybody know what Deuteronomy 6 is, that passage that starts with here, O Israel? What's that called? Yeah, the Shema starts with that Hebrew word here, listen. And when he commands us in Deuteronomy 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Of course, it starts with hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. But when it recalls the truth of who God is, it then says in verses 6 and 7, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Clearly, God expects that we read and understand what he has revealed in Scripture. And so I think last week we touched on um, a little more about what we can understand about the clarity of Scripture and especially how clear it is for salvation. I really like what this particular confession Uh, puts together and this is kind of in modern English and you can think of it kind of as a combination of maybe the 1644 Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist Confession so you can pick whichever one um, you choose but in modern English it says something like this some things in scripture are clearer than others that's true that's why we talked about difficult passages last week some people understand the teachings more clearly than others and that's also true however The things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. What what are ordinary measures? If you're trying to read the Bible, maybe for the first time, what's an ordinary measure of just reading Scripture? What's that, Jesse? Yeah, just 
First of all, just read it. Read the Bible. And if, if you are someone who is searching for salvation, you're searching for what the truth is, you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, everything that you need to do that is in the Bible, and it's clear. Now, it's not, you can't just pick, okay, it's clear in this particular section, and that's all you need to read to understand it. You're going to have to go to a few places. You'll need to read perhaps the Gospel of John to understand the life, the truth of the life of Jesus and, and how he came on the scene and how God sent him and what his purpose is. Um, you can read the Gospel of Romans 1 um, through Romans 6 to understand how are we reconciled to God? Uh, what is our condition before him? So you may have to put several things together but it's still not hidden. It's not hidden knowledge. And some of the other ordinary means that I was thinking of maybe talk, talk about it to someone else, right? Discuss it. Um, clearly, the ordinary means that God showed Israel in Deuteronomy 6 were you meditate on it, you think on it, you consider what the words of God are, and you talk about them when you sit in your house, when you, when you lie down and when you rise up. Scripture is always on your mind. You're contemplating it. You're you're ruminating on it. You're trying to understand what are the implications for what God has revealed in Scripture. So we can affirm the same at the same time what Peter said about some of the writings of Paul. Some of the things in Scripture are hard to understand. But we can have confidence also when the psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. There's enough depth in Scripture that we'll never understand it perfectly in this life. Um, no matter who the Christian is, you can spend your entire life studying it, no matter how old you live. The, the depths of God and his wisdom and his knowledge and his perfections are such that we'll never reach the end of them in what he has recorded in Scripture. But it's also so simple that we can give the message of this book, and this, particularly the gospel, who God is, who man is, um, how God has provided a way for man to be reconciled with God. Those can be gleaned from the scriptures so that anyone can understand them. Whether they're reading it for themselves, they pull the Gideon's Bible out of the nightstand in the hotel, or whether you're witnessing to someone, whether they hear the preached word, it's simple enough that it can be understood. <clears throat> and we have confidence when Psalm 119 says, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It's not a secret code. It's not something that, that has to be spiritualized in such a way that the, what it actually means is something completely different than what it says. We can take it at face value. The third thing was the sufficiency of Scripture. <clears throat> what does it mean for the Bible to be sufficient? Exactly. The Bible is enough. It's enough not only for salvation, but after salvation. Just like Matt said, it's enough to show us everything that we need for life and godliness. It's enough to equip us for every good work. It's enough to deepen our understanding of who God is, to draw us closer, to increase our faith. It is sufficient for all of that. And we know that from other familiar passages. I think we read this last week as well in 2 Timothy 3. We read that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And the purpose of that is that every man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And furthermore, we don't need additional revelation from God. We talked about this last week. We don't need additional revelation from God for anything that we need for life. We don't need scripture and anything. We don't need scripture and a private prayer language. We don't need scripture and a whisper from the Holy Spirit. We don't need scripture and Jesus telling us something to do audibly. The canon of scripture is closed and God's revelation of himself is complete and it is completely recorded in the canon of Scripture, these 66 books that God has preserved for us. 
Now, we also talked about briefly last week that you know, that's, not, that's not what every Christian believes. Uh, some Christians search for continuing revelation, that God's word is not actually settled. We have to learn other things outside of Scripture. Um, and, and those folks, some of the folks um, we have fellowshiped with, with before, they've learned that that's not a distinctive of what we teach. We believe that Scripture is complete. There's no additional revelation and, and some of those are no longer with us. Now, those are still, still, still brothers and sisters. Um, but it is a distinction such that, um, you know, sometimes you can't fellowship together if your view of Scripture is different. It's so fundamentally different that you think there has to be extra revelation. Scripture in some way is not complete. I have to feel promptings. I have to feel um, some emotional twinge. I have to have some extra revelation from Jesus. Um, that is not what we believe, that's not what we teach. And it can divide, doctrine can divide, and I think it's necessary in that case that it does. <clears throat> so that's the sufficiency. Uh, finally, there was the authority of Scripture. What, is, what do we mean by the authority of Scripture? Anybody? The authority of Scripture. The standard for life and practice. Okay? So, what it means for Scripture to be authoritative. The Bible's words, we talked about this last week, the Bible's words are whose words? God's words. Second Peter says, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, repeatedly, it's, it's over a hundred times in the Old Testament, we see things like, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord. So these are the words of God, and just as Dan said, that, that's the standard. That's what has the ability to bind our conscience. That is the ultimate authority and has the authority to force us to obey the words of God and to force us to consider what it means to disobey the things that would please God. Because these are God's words. It's binding upon us. And then as we approach the topic of difficult passages and familiar passages, we said really flowing from that authority of Scripture, the fact that God is true, God never lies, he's not a man that he should lie, and Scripture itself says, thy word is truth. We can be confident that God's words are not untruthful, and Scripture even affirms that. And so some of these passages, if you haven't written down them before, are important because the Bible is self-attest to the fact that it is God's words. It self-attests to the fact that it's true. And it says it over and over in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 119, we've already read several passages from Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. Your word stands firm in heaven. In verse 128, it says of the same Psalm, 119, Your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. God, whatever your word says about something, that's what I believe about it. If you tell me this is how marriage is supposed to be, if this is how you tell me the role of men and women should be in society, if this is how you should tell me that we're to behave as a church and what our um, ecclesiology should be as a people gathered to worship God, God, I'm going to do that because I consider, I esteem all of your ways concerning all things to be correct, to be right. <clears throat> in Proverbs 30, it says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. And then, even in, in the New Testament, 
you know, pick a verse from the New Testament. Matthew 24, 35 is a great one. When these words are uttered, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the words of the Lord will stand. They'll all come to pass. There won't be any prophecy that won't come to pass. There won't be anything that God has said will happen that won't happen. That's the confidence that we can have in that. So when you consider, and I'll kind of lump all these into maybe one category of a high view of Scripture, do you feel that that is a distinctive of Crossway Bible Church? Are you familiar with with other believers or other churches that don't have a high view of Scripture? What, What do you think some of the consequences of that could be if we don't believe those things to be true about God's Word? What are some of the consequences that could happen, that do happen? Say it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how might that happen? Yeah, who's, who's going to argue with you if, you know, if, if I were someone who stood in, in a pulpit and said, oh, I know what the Bible says, but God told me this last night. He gave me a word for you. Should be a red flag, right? Um, so there's, there's a very real risk of doctrinal error. Because often the Lord told me, or I feel this strongly impression from the Lord, this is what I feel impressed to say often means this is what I think. This is what I, this is what I believe. And it can lead to error. Yeah. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. If we were ever to admit, if we were ever to say something, the Lord said this, and someone points out that it's error, if you admit it, right, then you're a false prophet. You're saying something that's not true. What, is, what does the Bible say happens to false prophets? Not good things, right? <laughs> they get killed. Um, there's really not a category in Scripture for a so-so prophet or a prophet who's half right. There's really not a category in Scripture where we can have continuing revelation from God, and it can be right some of the time. It either has to be right all of the time or none of the time. That is the standard that we set for the truthfulness of God. That's not just a high view of scripture. That's a high view of who God is. God is not a God that he, he works in ways like that that are confusing to the minds of men. He wants to reveal himself. He declared who he is through his son. There's no reason for God to obscure himself uh, such that we're always groping for additional revelation of who he is very good thank you very much sir as we turn our attention again to difficult passages and familiar passages um, let's think about last week um, the steps that were provided for us by the author of the study and what we how we can approach for example difficult passages but let's take confidence that God's word is true And first of all, acknowledge that any difficulty we have with understanding Scripture lies with us and not with God. We also need to remember it's the Spirit who provides illumination to Scripture. Now, we already said Scripture is clear. A lost person can learn everything a lost person needs to know about how to be reconciled with God through the Scripture. But things that are difficult, things that seem contradictory in Scripture, things that become paradoxes, can be illumined by the Spirit. Any barrier to understanding we talked about last week is um, really not primarily an intellectual barrier to knowledge, although, of course, we do have to read the Word of God. So not being able to read or not being able to hear the words of God read to you would be a, a hindrance. But the barrier to understanding what Scripture rightly says is often a spiritual barrier, a moral barrier. 
And even though that's true as far as it goes, we should also take care when we talk about illumination of the Spirit so that that doesn't become some mystical thing. Like, I haven't received my second gift of illumination so that I can interpret Scripture. Or I need to, you know, do something else and go to a higher spiritual plane so that the Holy Spirit will finally allow me to, to understand what Scripture says. We can push on this idea of illumination of Scripture too much um, because the Holy Spirit provides illumination to the mind and heart of believers uh, at the new birth. And you can think about the illumination of the Holy Spirit maybe not so much as the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand what's on the page. It is, it's also, and maybe much more so, the Holy Spirit helping you to, as a new believer or as, a, as an old believer, esteem the words of Scripture to be authoritative. When we come to the Word of God as a believer, we're not coming to the Word of God doubting. We're coming to the Word of God believing that this is the truth. And we esteem it to be God's Word, and that's how we approach it. We don't come as skeptics. We come as whatever the Bible has to say is true, and I want that truth. And we absolutely pray, Holy Spirit, God, through your Spirit, would you help me to see this? I, I don't really understand this. Will you help me to piece that together? Those are appropriate prayers. But to say that that's some sort of special spiritual gift of illumination, I think, goes too far. Um, and we've had, we've had new believers, praise the Lord, at this church. And one of the first symptoms of being a new believer is that you have a hunger for the Word of God. You esteem it to be God's Word. <clears throat> and so when you think about the spiritual barrier to the Word of God, you know, you can go, you can go Google this, and I, I don't recommend it. It's not very uplifting for you but there are whole websites where skeptics and atheists do nothing but list apparent contradictions in scripture and and they do that because their assumption is what's their underlying assumption when they list these things what's the underlying assumption of a skeptic Yeah, that's good, Matt. Their, their underlying assumption is that this is not true. This is, this is not binding upon my life. I don't have to be accountable before this God. But really in their hearts, we know from Scripture, because we believe Scripture, we know that they know that there's a God. They know that they're accountable to a God. But Romans 1 says, just like Matt was reminding us, they are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They hold down the truth and unrighteousness. And the, the underlying issue is they don't want to be accountable to God. But when we, as believers, come to Scripture, we esteem it to be God's Word. And we don't, I mean, we expect to see difficult things because God is, His ways are not our ways. We're never going to perfectly understand who He is because His depths are unsearchable. But we don't expect Him to be playing games with us and to, to want contradictions to uh, discourage us to despair. We expect him to care for us like a father cares for his children and that he wants to give us um, knowledge of who he is, that he wants to, wants to do that because he loves us. He has a relationship with us as his children. And we, we also touched on last week that if the gospel is veiled, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Right? There is a clear moral spiritual boundary of a lost person, they're looking at Scripture, they could learn what they need to learn from Scripture to be reconciled with God, but when they look at all the, the deep truths of Scripture, they just don't compute. They are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. But if you're a Christian, you can pray the prayer of Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. 
because we have confidence in what 1 Corinthians 2 says, that we might know the things that have been freely given us by God. We have confidence that God is, again, not trying to hide things from us. So when we talked about difficult passages last week, there were uh, kind of four steps that we went through. What was the first step, if you remember, when you approach a difficult passage? Four steps. The first one is the same as the first step on your outline. Step number one, pray. Okay? Pray. And we didn't repeat the outline from last week, but the second thing was to what? After we pray, we ask for God to help us to calm down, have confidence in his word, confidence confidence that he wants us to understand his word, help us piece these things together in our mind. What's the next thing we would do trying to comprehend a difficult passage? Examine the context. Remember talking about context? And since you don't have that on your outline, and maybe you didn't write those down from last week, the others were, the other two, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Remember that principle of letting Scripture be the best interpreter of itself. Let's not bring our external ideas to what Scripture says. Let's read Scripture and use the principles of interpretation. From that Scripture interpreting Scripture, you know, that was the lead into inductive Bible study. That's why part of the focus of this series was inductive Bible study. We're drawing out the meaning of Scripture from Scripture. We're letting clearer passages guide us into interpreting more difficult passages. So as we interpret scripture, um, there were three points under that. It was diagnosing what the difficulty is. Let's really drill down into what the contradiction seems to be or what the difficulty seems to be. Let's find relevant passages, whether we're using, what, what are some of the resources you could use if you're trying to find relevant passages or themes with what you're having difficulty with? What are some of the tools you have available? Yes, sir. Commentaries? Okay. Sure. What else? Yeah. How about the cross-references in our Bibles? Now, those are not divinely inspired, but they're also usually very helpful. They'll take you to similar themes, parallel passages. Sometimes the parallel passages will even be denoted for you with little bars help you understand, especially in the synoptic gospels, here's where you can read about this gospel event from other perspectives. A Bible dictionary, a concordance, you know, and most of the stuff doesn't have to take up space in your bookshelf anymore. It's all freely available online. Um, So many study tools, I'm not even going to name them all. Uh, Some of them were recommended in previous handouts by Brian. But uh, Google, I mean, you may have your favorite Bible software, but actually Google is the fastest way to find. If I remember a phrase in Scripture, and I can't really find the right wording, you stick it in a search engine, it'll pretty much find it. And that's, that's a real blessing, something we didn't have. Um, you know, back, way back in the old, olden times when we were using the early stages of online Bible software to do searches, but we have all those things, and they're, they're pretty much freely available. Now, you can spend as much money as you want, but there's so many that's freely available, it's not really necessary. And then the last step was to synthesize. Synthesize means what? Do you remember what that word means in this context? It has to do with drawing connections from other passages, with other passages. We're making connections to passages that are clear to help us with passages that aren't so clear. And then the last thing, we talked about calling Greg at 3 in the morning. What was that called? It's called ask for help. Right, ask for help. Don't call Greg at 3 in the morning. Any crisis we have in in Scripture can probably wait till the next business day at least. But um, we have elders. We have biblically qualified elders. Um, We have... um, 
folks that have led Bible studies, taught Bible studies. Um, and I think overall, we have people that have been Christians a long time. You should expect someone who's been a Christian for 30 years uh, to help you navigate something that maybe as a new believer you're struggling with. We would have that expectation. And if they don't, then it would be a good reminder for that person that they need to get serious about um, growing in the truth of God's word. So there are lots of things available to help us. And again, I would go back to the point, the underlying assumption of the word of God is that it is God's words. We're not expecting to find things that aren't true in God's word. So if there's an apparent contradiction in God's word, it's just that. It's an apparent contradiction. It doesn't, on the surface, it doesn't make sense to me, but I can expect that there's a solution to this. And similarly, you can go on the internet to trustworthy websites, and some people have devoted half of their life to just enumerating all the apparent contradictions in scriptures and given very plausible, thorough answers for reconciling those. If we really believe that there was a contradiction in scripture that was a factual error, then we couldn't have any confidence in scripture. So we don't expect to find them. And we don't. All apparent contradictions in scripture are limitations on our understanding. It's not because God has put tricks in there and it's certainly not because there's something untrue or that God has contradicted himself. So last week we briefly had touched on these, um, the problem of familiar passages and really didn't get very far. Um, let's think about familiar passages. What are some familiar passages that you all grew up knowing and saying, even before you were Christians? The light of the world. What else? Genesis 1? Is that what somebody said? Yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a familiar passage. How about some others? Yeah, John 3.16. We write it on football helmets. We flash it at the bottom of uh, TV screens, put it on billboards. Yeah, it's kind of... What else? Okay, which says... Stand at the door and knock, yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a good one. I can do all things through Christ, strengthens me. It's the, the motto of every good athlete. Yeah, what else? <laughs> the, the last part I didn't hear. What was the last part of that? Yeah, an eye for an eye, okay. <clears throat> yeah, others? How about where any or two or three are gathered in my name? There am I in the midst of them? I think Brian talked about that once in the terms of context. What else? The Lord watch between me and thee when we're apart from each other? Mizpah, beautiful necklaces they make that say that. What else? Yeah, yeah. God works all things together for good uh, for those who are called according to his purpose, which often distills down into everything happens for a reason. That's the paraphrase, right? Everybody says that, Christian or not, everything happens for a reason. What else? Okay, it's in Chronicles. My people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, yeah, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I'll forgive their sin and heal their land, yeah. Yeah, so we grew up maybe reciting these passages in Bible school. Um, when I was a kid, you know, 100 years ago, um, I went to vacation Bible school, and when I was there, uh, we used to earn these ribbons and prizes and pins for learning scripture. And some of those things are, some of those words are still with me. I, my, the first Bible that was ever given to me, King James Bible, um, covered in red, bonded leather, was given to me because as a kid in vacation Bible school, um, they wanted us to memorize a large portion of John chapter 3. And even 20 years removed from the date when I got that Bible, I was eight or nine years old, you know, I would still 
I would still know some of that scripture was still in my mind. Um, and that's, that's why we do things like Bible quizzing, right? The word of God is still God's word. It still has power. Now, even, even to an unbeliever, familiar passages that we memorize, when, when that believer comes by faith and repentance to Christ, you know, now all those things that they've read come alive. But the trap of unfamiliar passages for a Christian when studying the Bible, what do you think that is? What, what, what's the risk of coming to John chapter 3 and say, man, I've, I know this. I've read it a hundred times. What's the risk with familiar passages? Yeah. Not taking the time to actually study through it looking for what the Word of God says rather than our assumptions that we bring to what the Word of God says. So the risk with difficult passages is confusion, but the risk of familiar passages is that we, we come to that with assumptions that are already baked into us because those passages are so familiar. Um, assumption can kill our study of the Bible. Right? I already know what it says. I'm not going to read it again. Uh, I don't have to really struggle through this to draw connections from it because this is a well-worn passage for me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with it. So it can lead to dry Bible studies. Even worse, it can lead to a distortion of what the Bible says. We talked about some of those things that are clearly out of context, like Matthew 18, two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them in the context of church discipline. Um, it's the risk of that are numerous, but getting it completely out of context, getting it wrong, is certainly at the top of the list. So if you look at your outline, uh, studying familiar passages has starts with the same, same step. One is pray. If you intend to study a passage that has been familiar to you for a long time, um, a good prayer to pray might be, God, would you help me to take a step back from this, cast off my assumptions as best I can, and look to see what your word really says. Make sure that I'm not bringing to your word assumptions. And that has to do with number two. Don't assume, ask. Ask questions of the text as you go through that. Um, the best interpreters are those who ask the most questions, someone has said. Questions like the ones we ask about difficult passages, the same questions apply. What's the context? What's the structure of the passage? What are these words actually mean? How does it compare or contrast to similar passages in the Bible? The same types of context questions we can ask ourselves. To give our best answer before we turn to a commentary or other tool. Um, we all recognize that commentaries are really good, they're re readily available, but we should try to leave those last. We talked about last week. Because if the first thing we go to is a commentary to try to dig, to dig out meaning then the best we're going to do is just think like whoever that commentator is. <clears throat> so number three is search for surprises. And that, that, maybe that's a surprising step. Why do you think it would say search for surprises? Search for things? Mm-hmm. Very good. Really just looking for things that go against your assumptions. Just look for, hey, am I bringing my own narrative to this passage or to this verse? What's actually, what does this verse actually teach? What's the context of this verse? Am I even in the wrong part of the puzzle box? We talked about looking at the picture on a puzzle box to kind of see if you're even in the right section or genre where you're supposed to be. Am I making assumptions and then look for things that contradict those assumptions. And then number four says meditate. I think we, we talked about meditation previously, but there's a familiar passage to you. We need to ruminate on it. We need to think about it. We need to contemplate it. 
We need to wrestle with it. Understand if, you know, the more that we think on Scripture, just like Deuteronomy 6 instructs us to do, um, the more we can search, search the meaning through just considering what does it say? What's the application of it? Why is it in there? Why does it bother me? What is, what is it most bothering me about this passage? What seems different than what I've always thought it meant before? So prayer, of course, is also foundational to meditation. Um, some folks would recommend praying a passage, you know, pray scripture back to God. I think Don, Don Whitney would be an advocate of that in some of his material. Um, trying to internalize what that scripture says articulated in such a way that the meaning could become more clear. The last point is express. Expression, the writer of, the, of this Bible study says, deepens impression. You tend to remember things when you express them. It can be verbally. Maybe you like to journal. Maybe you like to write things in a, in a Bible journal. Um, you know, the action of thinking about things and expressing them in several different ways, talking about them with a friend, talking about them with a fellow Christian can help to deepen your understanding of Scripture and to help open your eyes to see things that maybe are not, that we've taken for granted uh, for, for too long. So let's look at John 3.16 as an example. This is the part I mentioned last week, but we didn't quite get to. Let's look at this passage in John chapter 3, starting in verse 13. On the second page of your handout. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, so the familiar passage, we've already mentioned that as one of the familiar passages, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if we're coming to this passage, we're trying to come to this passage for the first time, what are some of the things that we, we could do to help us maybe break down assumptions that we're bringing to the text? Yeah, for God so loved the world. And that's, that's not even one I put in here, but you have an assumption about what the world is, right? What's, what's the context of the passage? What's going on in John chapter 3? It's the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus, isn't it? <clears throat> so... Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night. And if, we, if you look at the heading in your Bible over John chapter 3, does anybody have a heading in your Bible over John chapter 3? What does it say? Mine happens to say the new birth. It's talking about being born again. That's the conversation, kind of the crux of the conversation he's having with Nicodemus. And, and by the way, those topics, those those uh, topics over the chapter numbers there are not inspired, um, but it's a helpful, helpful uh, kind of a road sign to understand what we're about to look at. And so he does have this conversation with Nicodemus. Um, if you have a red letter Bible, what color are the words in your red letter Bible? John chapter 3, at least 11 through 21. Are they black or red? They're red, so there's an assumption there with whoever edited your Bible that those are the words of Jesus. And sometimes there can be debate over whether he's saying that or whether he's being quoted. 
<clears throat> so you should work that out as well. Who's saying this? God so loved the world. So I think another helpful thing to do is, and maybe it's, maybe it's too simplistic to think about, look at other good English Bible translations. Does that look any different than what I've memorized or thought about this verse for a long time? And that's why you see there at the bottom of the handout, compare some translations. Let's take a look at those three uh, separate verses from the different translations. The first one is the New King James, which is what I have quoted in the context up there. And I have little uh, superscripts there by a couple of words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, the NESB is almost the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then another fairly popular one, um, in some circles at least, would be the Christian Standard Bible. It used to be called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. What does it say? For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Does anything look different about that translation? What's different? What's the first difference you notice when you look at a translation comparison? Yeah, the word so. We see so, we see whatever that Greek word is translated so in the first two translations, and then we see it translated in a different way in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. <clears throat> now at the bottom, how many of you have used a Strong's Concordance? You know what a Strong's Concordance is? Um, used to be a big, heavy book, but now that's all digital for you too, and you can even Google that. And there's so much of that in the public domain, now it's scary. But yeah, um, every Greek word in the underlying text is given um, a number. And so G for Greek, number 3779, that is that Greek word. And then you can look at a Bible dictionary and you try to think, well, why is that translated differently? So find a Bible dictionary, look in the Strong's Concordance, see how that's translated in these verses, and look at what the definition is given. And, and I think I took, I took both of these, I think, from Thayer's. So the definition that I saw for so in the New King James and the NASB, that word, the definition says, in this manner, thus so, so what's interesting about that? Is, that? is that anything, why does that go against what's familiar with the passage? What do you think about? Let's make, the, let's make another assumption. Let's say that the word should be translated in this way or as follows. Does the, does the assumed meaning we have of the passage change? Can it change? You just think about that first phrase, for God so loved the world. What do you, what's often thought about for God so loved the world? Yeah, God so loved the world. It's the extent of God's love. It's, it's the magnitude of God's love. God so loved the world. And that's, that's kind of the, the, certainly the assumption that I think most people have certainly had that for the majority of my life. God so loved the world. There have been whole church conferences set up on this as a refutation of other points of doctrine. John 3.16 conference, um, mainly around God loving the world, but the extent of God's love. And so I know the extent of God's love and that he provided his son as a sacrifice. I don't think anybody would argue that is, is that what it means to love very much, or is that just kind of love? You know, I don't think that's where the argument lies. The argument lies in trying to understand, you know, English translations can kind of be a barrier to understanding Scripture rightly if we're not careful. And so if you look at the next page, what does the word so mean? I'm looking at other passages that the concordance would tell me is using that same word. Matthew 1.18, and this should be a familiar passage with you as well. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Same word. In the NESB, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The birth of Jesus Christ in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, etc., etc. So there's another uh, place in Scripture which is using that same word and it's translated in that same manner that we see John 3.16 translated in the Christian Standard Bible. Let's compare that to Matthew 5, another familiar passage about letting our light shine before men. The New King James says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think this passage is probably the most plausible on us trying to understand that nuance of meaning about what does so actually mean here. Let your light so shine before men. It's like, it's like if you said, we don't talk this way anymore, but Johnny so built a raft that it could withstand the currents of the river. We don't, we don't talk like that anymore. But that same construction of the word so can be used and often was used in older times. That It means in this way, in this manner. And that's why you see in the, new, the NASB say, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I think last, last week I suggested to you a parallel passage. Maybe it's not a true parallel passage. It's not, it's not in uh, the Gospels. I think it's by the same author, 1 John 4, verse 9. And he's not using the exact same word. He's using a pronoun form of that word that's used as an adverb in John 3.16. But he says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. The NASB says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. And so basically it says, John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love to the world. This is how God manifested or revealed his love to us. Not really talking so much about the extent of God's love, although I don't think any of us would argue um, argue that but there's really nothing to point us to that it's really saying this is how God showed his love to the world so does that change the meaning of that verse at all just just in all honesty does it change the meaning of the verse at all And I, I, think, I think that is true. And you could say, well, if that's what God loving the world so much means, what would it look like if God just kind of loved the world? What would he do then? Would there be a different way of salvation that didn't include him sacrificing his only son? So <clears throat> it's, it's, maybe it's not the best example, but I think it's, it's a good example because I know everybody has heard this verse their entire lives. They memorized it. Um, so just as a first step, if you're studying the Bible, it is very helpful to read different English translations. Now, I think they're unhelpful English translations. I'm always shocked when I, I forget what the website is, like Bible Hub or something. Type in John 3.16, click the button that says show all English translations. How many of them do you think there are? There's a crazy number of English translations. Most of them written in the last 50 years. Um, so, be careful, pick a trusted Bible translation. I tried to pick some that are trusted um, by many, by most. But you can, also, you can also pick up on the biases of the publishers by looking at some of these Bible translations too. And I think the last thing I wanted to say about Bible translations is if, if the publishers at the Lockman Foundation, if the publishers of the ESV and their their textual board who did translations, they knew they knew that the nuance of John 3.16 is more like in this way, in this manner. Why do you think they didn't choose to translate it that way? Why do you think they would choose to, well, this, we know that's kind of, we don't understand that word to mean that anymore. We should probably translate it this way. Why do you think they would make a decision not to do that? It's what? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's, there's something to be said for the fact that if somebody picks up this new translation, and what's the first thing you do? Well, let me look at John 3.16. Did they mess that up? And then it starts reading differently than what you've always thought it meant. And now, now all of a sudden you don't trust that translation. Um, there is a sense in which that's a, a very real thing, especially if people want you to buy the translation that they're going to publish. So you take that into account as well. Any final thoughts on any of that? We've talked about difficult passages and familiar passages. The key thing I wanted to leave you with in these two lessons that I got to lead you through is we've given a lot of steps of things that you can do to help understand Scripture. The number one thing that we should do to understand Scripture is read it. Um, don't be discouraged if you can't remember these five steps to go through Scripture and say, well, I skipped step number two. I need to go back. I'm a bad Christian because I didn't sit down and take you know an entire week to go through these three verses. Read the Word of God. Bring to the Word of God what the Spirit gave you as your assumption was, this is the authority of God. This is God's authoritative word. It's binding on my conscience. What it says to do, I will do. What it says to not do, I will make every effort in me up to the shedding of blood to not do this sin. <clears throat> All right, well, let's, let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to consider what your word means to consider what it means to study the Bible, to search the scriptures. And we ask, just like we prayed last week, give Crossway Bible Church a hunger for the word of God, <clears throat> that we would search the scriptures, that it would be always on our tongues, that we would be urged to memorize it so that we could witness more effectively, so that we could draw application from it for more readily as we go about our daily lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.